welcome back from uh, from your breaks. Um, hope you stretched and got got healthy and um, exercised so that you could avoid being frail. Um, <laughs> the next talk uh, is one of our favorite uh, speakers, uh, Christine Erlinson. Christine is an associate professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Colorado at the Anschutz campus, something like that, um, in Denver, um, and has done really a lot of work, has, has become over the last couple of years, I think, truly one of the world's leading experts on, on uh, frailty and effects of exercise and other things in people with HIV. So uh, take us take us on a trip, Christine. Great. Thank you for the introduction. So I get to serve as the transition between antiretroviral therapy and COVID um, and talk about uh, frailty in, in physical function, which have become an important topic both in HIV and now in COVID, as we're seeing with some of the long COVID syndrome. Uh, my disclosures are listed here. Um, and I'm hoping that today we can cover ways that you can describe the clinical relevance of physical function and frailty, select tools for measuring physical function and frailty, either in the clinic or the research setting, incorporate interventions to attenuate and reverse frailty and impairments in physical function. So to start, with an increasing age of people aging with HIV, terms such as functional impairment, frailty, and disability are being used with increasing frequency. And although you can see someone and oftentimes recognize that they're frail or functionally impaired, how can we best define these conditions so that we can compare between populations, between cohorts, and even over time in our own patients? So first, let's take a look at the World Health Organization uh, disability framework. The basis of this model is that there's some sort of pathology at the level of the body function. So an example of this might be arthritis or peripheral neuropathy. Over time, that impairment may lead to limitations in activities, things that we see in clinic, like slowness getting up from a chair, a slow gait walking to and from the exam room. Over time, that could also lead to a disability or a limitation in the ability to participate in the community and the activities that someone wants, wants to participate in. What's important to note is that disability is very much a social construct. It's dependent on what that individual expects of him, him or herself, what's expected of that individual within their own culture, which could differ quite a bit between different cultures and different countries, what resources are available to help that person function in their community, and then how their physical environment is set up. So, for example, we may have an older individual who has severe hearing impairment, severe arthritis, and they're wheelchair bound, and they could easily be considered disabled. But if we were able to uh, um, ensure that that patient had adequate hearing aids that um, allowed them to essentially return their hearing to normal, and they had wheelchair accessible transportation in a home that was wheelchair, wheelchair, wheelchair accessible, they could still is easily work full time and fully participate in the community. In contrast to the disability framework, frailty, as you can see on the far left side of this figure, is a separate but closely related concept that describes more of a vulnerability to stressors. And I'll talk a lot more about frailty in the next several slides. It's also important, as you can see on the right side of the figure, to note that frailty is related to and often overlaps with comorbidity and disability, but it's not the same. Not all frail individuals have disability. Not all people with several comorbidities are frail. Frailty can also exist outside of comorbidity, even though it's not that common to have frailty without comorbidities. And disability can also occur without frailty. 
you can all probably picture a frail person in your mind and the idea that they're very fragile and easily broken. And frailty encompasses that concept of vulnerability. If you look to where the blue arrow is in the middle, this is an example of someone who's frail. They continue at kind of a medium level of performance and have some upset kind of in their normal homeostasis or physiologic responses. Um, they encounter a stressor, such as a hospitalization or maybe a new diagnosis of COVID, and they have this abrupt decrease in their performance. They upset their homeostasis. Um, a lot of their organs may dysfunction to a great, uh, to a certain extent, and then they slowly reach back and kind of get close to where their performance was, but not quite. Um, they uh, continue to have some slight clinical de deterioration and then encounter another stressor, kind of continue that cycle, um, eventually trending downwards in terms of performance. In contrast, someone who's pre-frail or non-frail encounters that same stressor, the hospitalization. They had a decrease in their performance and they bounce right back to where they were, perhaps after a few weeks or months, but they can return to that same level of performance and continue on. One of the most common descriptions of frailty is that of the, pheno the frailty phenotype. And this was initially described by Linda Freed. So sometimes it's called the Freed frailty phenotype. It encompasses this concept of vulnerability that was shown on the prior slide. The initial um, phenotype included five different components, including slow gait, which is measured usually by just a short four meter walk or four and a half meter walk, uh, essentially across the inside of a clinic room. Weak grip strength, which is which is measured using a handheld dynamometer, probably not something that's uh, held or uh, uh, kept in most HIV clinics. Uh, low levels of physical activity, which are usually something by self-report self-reported fatigue, and then an unintentional weight loss. If someone has three or more of these criteria, they're considered frail. If they have one or two, they're considered pre-frail. Pre -frail, and if they don't have any, they're considered robust or non-frail. The frailty phenotype um, must be assessed prospectively, mostly because we don't often have a measure of gait or weak grip um, that are included in our routine clinic notes. So it's something that would be hard to go back and, and collect retrospectively unless that was something that was routinely done in your clinic. Um, it does require about five to 10 minutes to complete this assessment. And it also requires that four meter walking course, which can be easily measured in a clinic. Um, and a handheld dynamometer, which is usually something that's sent in for calibration once a year and can be a bit more difficult to kind of have on hand in your clinic. The other common way to think about frailty is called the deficit accumulation model or the frailty index. And this was developed by Ken Rockwood and uh, colleagues. This model um, considers variables that increase with age, but they're not ubiquitous, not ubiquitous with age and they're associated with health status. So for example, osteoporosis increases with age. Not all older individuals have osteoporosis and osteoporosis is associated with poor health outcomes. The nice thing about the frailty index is that it can be derived from chart review, and it can also be developed for specific populations using variables that are available in that cohort or routinely in that clinic, um, clinic setting, or even in international sites. Um, instead of scoring this from zero to five, like the frailty phenotype, this instead creates an index looking at the number of variables that are impaired divided by the number of variables that are assessed. So, for example, if you chose 30 different kind of organ systems within your clinic um, and assess those through various labs like kidney function, blood pressure, liver function, if someone had 15 of those 30 impaired, then they'd have a frailty index score of 0 0.5. 
Some of you may also be familiar with the VAX index. This was uh, developed by Amy Justice and colleagues within the Veterans Aging Cohort Study. And this is a similar concept to the, the frailty index, um, except that it uses a pretty minimal amount of lab values. The initial Rockwood index included up to about 70 variables, whereas this one just has the list that you can see to the right. Um, this uh, um, has been tested in both veterans um, and non-veteran populations, both with and without HIV, and is uh, quite predictive of mortality and morbidity, um, and is thought to uh, um, provide some estimate of frailty. So why is there this increasing interest in frailty in populations with HIV? And why, why might someone with HIV be at risk for frailty? Well, this schematic was developed by Jeremy Walston and Linda Freed, who developed the frailty phenotype, and it illustrates some of the factors that are thought to contribute to the development of frailty in the general population. As you can see, many of these same factors, such as, as on the left, oxidative stress, telomere shortening, inflammatory diseases, um, some of those impaired physiologic sy systems like sarcopenia, osteopenia, declines in cognition, many of these are also thought to underlie the accelerated or the accentuated aging or uh, development of certain comorbidities that we see in people with HIV. And our group, as well as many others, have shown that these same factors are associated with the development of frailty in people with HIV. So in addition to these mechanisms of aging that are common both in people with and without HIV, we also see a lot of other factors that may contribute to that increased risk of frailty in HIV. There's certainly biobehavioral factors that may occur more commonly in people with HIV, uh, things such as substance abuse or decreased levels of physical activity. There's HIV or ART-associated factors, such as some of the mitochondrial toxicity, lipodystrophy, or obesity that we can see associated with some antiretroviral therapy. And importantly, there's also some structural inequalities that may contribute, um, such as a lack, a lack of housing, poor nutrition, um, uh, stigma, all of these have been shown to contribute to frailty, both in people with and without HIV independently, in, in addition to their effect on um, faster development of comorbidities. So the question is, does frailty occur more commonly in people with HIV or even earlier in people with HIV? And based on a few studies that include both people with HIV and uninfected controls that are demographically similar, we think that yes, it does. Um, as you can see in the figure on the left, this is data from the age HIV cohort out of Amsterdam. Those that are frail are shown in the top bar, um, that dark gray, and those that are pre-frail in the lighter gray. Each set of bars has the HIV uninfected individuals on the left and those with HIV on the right for various age categories. So if we focus in the two bars on the right, that's the group of people age 65 and older, you can see that the proportion that are frail in this cohort with HIV is almost 20%, much higher than that group without HIV. Across other age ranges, it's more about 5 to 10%, but it's consistently higher in those with HIV compared to the uninfected group. We see similar effects in the, or similar uh, results in the MAX cohort or the multicenter AIDS cohort study in the figure on the right, where those with HIV shown in the, the black diamond seem to have higher rates of frailty compared to those without HIV shown in the, the empty square. Um, and that separation between the two groups seems to happen starting at about age 50. The prevalence of frailty in several other studies really seems to vary depending on the age of the cohort, 
whether all of the participants or just a small portion are on antiretroviral therapy, and then how frailty is assessed, be it the FREED index or the or the FREED frailty phenotype or the frailty index or other measures of frailty. Um, in general, the rates of frailty in most populations of people with HIV tend to be about five to eight percent. So actually a pretty small percent of people um, end up frail. The percentage of pre-frail people, on the other hand, tends to be closer to 45, 55, even 65 percent in some studies. So instead of focusing on frailty, can we identify some limitations that might occur before frailty or disability so that we can prevent frailty and prevent some of this progression onward to morbidity and mortality? So if we go back to the figure that I showed you initially, um, we see that limitation area. So ideally, we could identify some of these initial limitations before they're progressing. An example of one um, physical performance battery that is strongly predictive of mobility impairment, so uh, major issues with walking, hospitalizations, and mortality is called the short physical performance battery. And this is used quite commonly in the geriatric setting. This test includes three different uh, assessments, a tandem stand, which starts with uh, standing with feet side by side, slightly apart, and then a tandem um, where it's heel to toe, that short gait speed test of four meters, so just the distance across the room, um, the same that's included in the freed frailty phenotype. And then the final test is the time to stand from a chair, uh, and that's just measured five times. So in contrast to the frailty phenotype, this test can be done without any additional equipment, except for a chair and a stopwatch, and can be done within the room. Um, they're simple tests, doesn't take too long, probably about five to 10 minutes, and then also some studies and some cohorts have expanded these tests by adding a one-leg stand or increasing the number of chair stands to try to detect some even more subtle differences in younger or healthier populations. And some studies have explored using either these combinations, like the short physical performance battery, or either just components of the frailty phenotype to try to have something simple that gives us some information without spending quite as much time or needing equipment. And this uh, shows some examples of um, decreases in those single components from the multi-center AIDS cohort study. You can see gait speed on the left and grip strength in the right. The um, men with HIV are shown in the red line and those without HIV are shown in the blue line. And although we see a decrease in gait speed and a decrease in grip strength with age in both groups, you can see that the red line really starts to separate from the blue line and declines a lot faster, um, beginning at about age 50 for gait speed and about age 60 for grip strength. Importantly, we also see that these physical function or frailty markers are associated with lower survival. This is data from the ALIVE cohort, and you can see that the combination of HIV with physical function impairment by the SPPB or HIV with frailty, um, measured by the free frailty phenotype, are associated with the lowest survival. Um, this is an uh, uh, effect um, seen more than by HIV alone or by physical performance battery um, or frailty alone. So at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, you just told me all this information about frailty and physical function, but what am I actually supposed to do in the clinic? Should I measure physical function impairment, frailty, or both, and what tests should I actually be measuring? Well, I think this depends on what your question is and why you're assessing these in the first place. What, what information are you hoping to derive, and how are you hoping that might impact care? So if you're assessing physical function, some of these measures like gait speed and grip strength or chair rise, you're really looking to identify those that are at risk for disability or at risk for frailty. 
this group has the greatest potential that we can reverse early impairments. So you're identifying that group that still has mild impairments that maybe is at risk of progressing, that we can have some room for improvement. Frailty, on the other hand, is identifying that group that's high risk. These are the individuals that are very high risk, vulnerable to stressors. We want to try to minimize their progression, avoid unnecessary procedures, um, particularly for uh, elective surgeries maybe that could be postponed until um, someone reached a higher level of function. And disability, on the other hand, is really identifying those that have decreased access to healthcare or resources. And so if we focus in on a few of those tests, just for a moment, I won't go through this slide in too much detail, but you can have it for a resource um, if helpful. So just to start, if we're thinking that we want to find that individual who's maybe at risk, um, so we're looking for a physical function tool. The 400-meter walk is one that it, uh, pushes that walk much further than the four-meter walk. So this is a quarter-mile walk. It can be set up as a short walk within your clinic. Oftentimes, it's done within the pulmonary clinic, but more in the form of the six-minute walk. Um, and it can uh, takes about five to ten minutes. You can set it up on more of a 25-meter course in a long hallway. The nice thing about the 400-meter walk is it's inc incorporating a little bit of endurance, some balance, um, uh, gait speed, kind of motivation. So several different or coordination, several different components, and it provides a continuous outcome. So instead of saying yes, no, someone's impaired or not, it gives us a lot of room for improvement so we can see if an intervention is helping. Um, similar to the SPPB, it does have to be conducted prospectively. Another test that I really like is the chair rise time. Um, so this is from the SPPB, but actually just looking at the time to rise from a chair. Uh, this is easy, fast. It only requires a chair. It probably takes less than a minute to perform. Um, you can convert it to a, a pace so that you can get a continuous outcome. And you can think about how this might be incorporated in the clinic just after someone gets their blood pressure. They're sitting in the chair, get a blood pressure check, stand up from the chair five times, record that score, and then walk him to the room. The other thing that can be really useful is just a questionnaire. There are some questionnaires that approximate components of either frailty or function. Um, they can be done in the waiting room as a brief screen. Uh, they, they might be um, better for identifying people that are that might benefit from a more detailed assessment, and they may not be as amenable to interventions, but they certainly can be quick. So another question that comes up often is it actually feasible to implement some of these tests in the clinic? Well, um, Heidi Crane and colleagues actually asked this question and tested it in three different HIV clinics using the short physical performance battery. They assessed, two of the clinics that they worked with were able to assess this um, either right before or right after a routine clinic visit. And a third site required that participants come back to a separate visit. The time to train the staff in the short physical performance battery was about an hour. The actual assessment time for each participant was only about seven minutes. And they, their conclusions were that it was feasible to implement this without serious disruptions or injuries. I would say um, participants that have to, or patients that have to come back for a separate visit just for this short assessment, it probably was more of a serious disruption. But I think um, thinking of ways that we can incorporate this might be helpful. So what do we actually do with some of these measures and how can we apply them in the HIV clinic? I'd like to give an example case that I think illustrates this. So you have a 68-year-old woman, generally in fair health. She has treated HIV and obesity. She's a non-smoker and doesn't have any diabetes. She admits to some difficulty with walking several blocks, some trouble with her balance, and some thinking problems. She's due for her mammogram and her colonoscopy. 
So would her functional impairments change your recommendation for whether you tell her she should have her routine mammogram and colonoscopy at age 68? So no, they wouldn't change it. You'd refer her for a mammogram and a colonoscopy. Yes, she should not be referred for a mammogram or colonoscopy, so it does change your your management. Or yes, the risk is probably greater than the benefit, but you should discuss it with the patient first. I'll give you a second to answer that. Okay, so it looks like the majority of you said no, it would not change your management. So if you haven't seen this before, there's a procedure called e-prognosis that was developed out of um, UCSF. And you can plug in age, BMI, medical conditions, and it basically tells you the risk and benefit for certain types of screenings. And so if I use this patient, I plug in all of her medical conditions into the calculator. It says, yes, exactly as people answered for number one, screening for breast or colon cancer is more likely to help this person than to harm her. However, if I go back and... My slide. Um, and I plug in her exact same medical conditions, but I add those functional impairments, that difficulty with balance, a little bit of cognitive impairment, and difficulty walking several blocks. Her calculator shifts entirely to the other side, and all of a sudden, it's no longer clear that she actually is getting a benefit from her colon cancer screening and her breast cancer screening, and she probably has a bit more morbidity and more mortality than we actually expect. And that's how I think some of these physical function tools can be used to help guide some of our decisions with our patients with HIV. I think there's an accelerated aging that we may not recognize in our patients, and they may actually be kind of physically older than they appear. So some of these may not necessarily tell us that we should stop screening for cancer, but that we should discuss it with the patient and ensure that she will have a benefit from screening and that she's willing to undergo some of the additional procedures that could entail. Um, it may help us think of that patient that's maybe a little bit higher risk for staying on a statin because they might have higher fall risk than we realized. We also want to make sure that those patients have advanced care planning in place. Um, with a, someone who has functional impairments, maybe one that we see, a patient that we see every two to three months instead of every six months. So some of these impairments may help identify um, frequency of visits or guide some of those decisions. And for those of you who have access to geriatric care referrals um, or have an HIV aging clinic within your clinic, this may identify those patients that really need that um, additional care from geriatric, uh, that additional geriatric care. I also think there's a place for some of these measures in the setting of clinical trials. So do we know how antiretroviral therapies are really impacting some physical function, subjective or objective measures in older participants that, are have, that have HIV? Could there be additional benefits or harms from some of our medications? An example of this is the Reprieve study, which is randomizing um, patients with low cardiovascular risk to uh, statin or placebo. And we were fortunate to have a sub-study of Reprieve where we're looking at the long-term benefits of statins on physical function. So now that we've identified these impairments, um, how and when can we intervene? So in someone with normal aging, as shown in that solid line, they have a fairly high level of physical performance until late in life, and then then they may progress into a frail state for the last few years of life. In contrast, someone with an accelerated aging process, such as has been proposed for people with HIV, shown in that dotted line, have a more much more rapid decline in function, something that we might detect by that short physical performance battery or 400-meter walk, 
they become much more frail earlier and then potentially um, into the disability and spend a much greater proportion of their lifespan leaving, living with frailty or disability. If we try to intervene when someone's down in that frail or disabled state, we have a much um, higher curve to get them back up to that full performance curve, much higher, much longer way to go. Whereas if we try to target someone in that initial decline when they have uh, just some slight decreases in their physical performance, we don't have quite as far to go and just small improvements can move someone back to that full performance. Curve. So how do we intervene? Well, if we go back and look at the geriatric literature and frailty, um, you can see highlighted um, the uh, recommended interventions for varying levels of frailty um, from robust to increasingly frail to in-stage frailty. And the main intervention for individuals really up until that very last stage of frailty is exercise. Most of the data in the HIV literature with physical activity and exercise has focused on younger individuals with lipoatrophy, lipodystrophy, or wasting. Although several more recent studies have included some functional outcomes, and you can see across a few of these publications that exercise training um, does seem to improve 400-meter walk. Um, some home-based exercise uh, or rehabilitation um, programs can improve the six-minute walk distance, which is similar to the 400-meter walk. Uh, an intervention using Tai Chi and cognitive behavioral therapy um, actually had a pretty impressive improvement on short physical performance battery scores. And then some multidimensional physical therapy um, that include uh, several different types of exercise can also improve many of these functional measures. In a study that we conducted in Colorado, we compared two different intensities, a moderate intensity and a high intensity of exercise over 24 weeks in people age 50 and older with and without HIV. And our primary focus was really on some of these functional measures. Um, we saw that across almost all of the measures, participants had almost a 45% improvement in some measures between 10 to 45% improvement. And that tended to be a bit higher in a group that was randomized to higher intensity exercise. In our study, we were really targeting that kind of early impairment. So we actually didn't enroll frail participants. We had many pre-frail participants, but, but we were trying to target that, that impairment before someone became frail. Um, and at baseline, about 80% of our participants had at least one component of pre-frailty, as you can see by the red and the green bars on the left. Over time, we had a, a significant decrease in those pre-frailty components, um, therefore uh, preventing some of this progression to frailty with time. So although we found that higher intensity exercise had the most improvements, really any exercise is better than no exercise. And as providers, I think it's so important that we can encourage small, simple steps for our patients to try to prevent frailty. The goal per the National Institute of Health updated physical activity guidelines is to try to improve or include um, at least four or these four areas with weekly exercise. So endurance, strength, balance and flexibility. Um, and particularly in the times of COVID, there's some, been some really great videos that are available online. Um, there's some silver sneakers videos on yoga workouts, sample workouts from Go For Life, which is from the National Institute of Aging, that has some great easy exercises that people can do at home with minimal equipment. And to help, we've also developed an exercise prescription. This is available from our um, publication in AIDS in 2019, and it includes some general exercise guidelines that you can write out as a prescription for your patients. 
It's signed by the healthcare provider and the patient. And we can start with some small goals. Um, ideally, there's one goal per week. And then the next week, there's a, a slight increase in either the days per week or the intensity. And this can be um, communicated via email or um, via tele- telehealth visit to try to set short-term goals to help patients to um, really maintain a regular physical activity habit. So in addition to exercise, what other types of interventions can we offer? Well, most of these interventions have not been investigated in the HIV setting necessarily, just in the general geriatric setting. There potentially is some benefit with nutrition. Um, This is primarily when combined with multimodal um, or uh, different types of interventions that include multiple components such as exercise, nutrition, rehabilitation, um, falls prevention. Uh, Geriatric consultative clinics such as the um, combined HIV aging clinics that we're seeing are beginning to address some of these multidimensional components and may, may have an important role, although we don't have data on this yet. Um, and then lastly, some of our patients really can't exercise enough or can't, exer- or can't exercise or can't exercise to the point to improve frailty. Um, and there are some pharmacologic options. Um, most of these are in the preclinical state and have not necessarily been tested in humans. There are a few that have data in um, people with HIV in particular, testosterone, and certainly just antiretroviral therapy is an important part of preventing frailty. And then um, a little bit of data uh, on tesamorelin, looking at muscle quality or the amount of fat within muscle. And then importantly, um, addressing the social determinants of health that underlie the risk of frailty is probably one of the most difficult, but also one of the, the most important long-term ways to help prevent frailty. So in summary, functional limitations and frailty can provide a window into patient vulnerability. They can help us guide clinical decision-making, help protect patients from harm, and avoid strategies that aren't likely to uh, result in benefit. Our interventions really should focus on early impairments that occur before midlife or in midlife um, before that individual becomes frail. Physical activity is one of the safest and most effective ways to improve physical function. Um, there's potentially some, some promising pharmaceutical options, but uh, these are not prime time yet and more research is definitely needed. Um, and just in closing, physical activity counseling should really become a routine component of our HIV, HIV visits to increase both the lifespan and the health span. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, uh, Christine. That was, uh, that was spectacular and obviously a really important and complex um, uh, set of challenges for us. Um, I was just wondering, as you're talking, how common pain might be uh, as a cause of, of decreased uh, um, activity and, and over time decreased functional ability. Um, I would guess that there are a number of people with some degree of chronic pain, and, and does, that, does treating that help things? Absolutely. I mean, pain is a huge part, portion of this. Um, the study that used Tai Chi and cognitive behavioral therapy was actually targeting patients with chronic pain. Um, and I think that was part of that was was helping um, some physical activity was part of it, but a lot of it was the cognitive piece and helping them to um, come up with coping strategies to improve that pain. But those types of interventions really did help with improving physical function. In fact, those were some of they were had really impressive improvements in their short physical performance battery score. I think with that combination um, approach. And then um, a question I really like because we see it so so much. How do we factor in loneliness? Um, you know, loss of partners um, or or almost you know all of their friends 
and related hopelessness, mm-hmm. um, I, yeah. which I guess raises the question then too of depression is uh, as another factor that we want to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Huge components of frailty. In fact, there's a emerging research on social frailty and how that's probably a whole nother component of frailty is that um, loneliness, social isolation, um, that whole component of frailty that, that addressing can help. Um, we, we actually just finished our first round of an exercise intervention here that was targeting kind of an online virtual program um, that started mid-COVID to help connect people. And I think that was a big part of our improvements that we saw um, with exercise was just connecting people and having that social network uh, that they were kind of together logging their step count. So I think physical activity can serve as a way to connect people with a common goal. Um, and then, you know, we had as part of our study, we had p- patients come to the um, or participants come to the botanic gardens where they could walk spaced apart, but at least had some sort of social engagement. So I think that's a huge part of treating frailty and physical function is addressing those those additional concerns. And then there are a couple questions uh, really going back at stuff you've already been talking about, but just to restate it, um, motivational strategies, motivational interviewing um, mm-hmm. as a way to get people kind of to the point where they're ready to consider um, beginning a, a, a more physical program. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is similar to smoking cessation, kind of assessing yeah. readiness um, and and asking uh, patients about it each time. So are you exercising? Are you exercising? Or are you, you know, what did you do for a physical activity? Um, what I found helpful with some patients is just start with a very small goal just to kind of get them out there. Um, so to, just for the next two weeks, go outside and walk for five minutes, walk around the block twice. So just starting with a small goal. And I think if they can start to get in that habit and realize it's not that bad, um, just kind of get in that habit of I'm going to do it every day for five minutes and it doesn't have to take up a lot of time. And then the next week it's going to be a little bit more. Um, and I think it, it, it really does start to become more of a habit and people start to enjoy it. Uh, there is that, that initial curve that you have to get over um, before it becomes enjoyable and it becomes a habit. Great. Um, another question that's, that's, that's a complex one. Um, uh, question about the comparisons of frailty and HIV positive versus HIV negative people. Have those been adjusted for the confounding effects of lifestyle issues that we think of as being more associated with people uh, with HIV infection? I'm thinking smoking mostly, Mm -hmm. um, but also perhaps drug use, um, other things that might um, kind of make frailty look worse or be more common in an HIV group than an uh, HIV negative group? Yep. A very important question. I think that's why the data in the Amsterdam study and the Max have been so helpful is those um, control populations are really selective for similar demographic features and they're not identical. So those studies have adjusted for those demographic factors and do still see that increased risk of frailty. Um, other populations with uninfected controls, I think a lot of those differences do go away. Um, there does seem to be a little bit more frailty, but I think it's it's less impressive in some populations. Um, but it does still seem to come out in the MAX and the Amsterdam HIV even after adjusting for those um, differences that we see oftentimes in populations of people with HIV. Great. And then a question about the online resources that you mentioned. Uh, again, I think your presentation is going to be available um, to the to the attendees. So maybe they'll be able to get that, get it themselves. But 
you mentioned Silver Sneakers, other programs mm-hmm. that you might refer people to. Is yeah, there- there's some, um, Silver Sneakers has a lot of free videos online. Um, a lot of them uh, were posted during the times of COVID. And then the Go for Life program has a lot of short videos that are available for seniors. Um, I actually just looked the other day and YouTube has a huge assortment. If you look on YouTube for senior exercises or um, exercises for older adults, uh, there's some great yoga videos some short five or 10 minute videos, which I think are an easy way for people to start um, uh, getting into exercise. Great. And I've seen stuff, I think probably in the New York times recently on just the potential benefit of even very kind of standing and, Mm -hmm. you know, very uh, easy things to do that might get people a little more mobile. Yeah. Just standing up from a chair, um, the chair rise test. I mean, if you'd stand up from a chair 10 times, that's, that's a great exercise to start to use yep. in the lower extremities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Christine. That was, uh, that was great. And now I get to toss the baton back to, uh, to Susan uh, through the electronic uh, mediums that we're working in. Great. Thank you.